Let us begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give You thanks and praise for all that You have given us. We especially give You thanks for the gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. We ask that You may inspire us to come to know His Word, the Bible, deep in our hearts, that we may come to understand our traditions, that we understand that from them we come to know You better. We ask that You may bless each and every one that has come here tonight, that they may grow in holiness and love through all that they do and all that they are. We ask this in Your name. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Again, as Chris said, I'm Father Paul Rutten. I'm the director of the Pius Twelfth Newman Center at SDSU. And so, I was down at the Chancery for uh, a Newman Center gathering, and we were sitting afterwards, and Chris said, uh, what are you doing May 11th? And I... <clears throat> Since college is done today, I really didn't have a whole lot of reasons for not to do something. And I said, well, I don't really have a topic. And he said, well, think about one, and then call me back. And I thought, mm. So anyways, one of the things that I found working at a Newman Center is many people come to college as a Catholic, and they've really never ever questioned why we do what we do. And most people never ask them. But it takes about two days before somebody finds out you're a Catholic, and they begin to ask you, why do you do that? Why do you do this? Don't you know Scripture says? Don't you know that you're not supposed to be doing this and that? So then they usually come on over to the Newman Center and they say, Father, why do we do this? And so they go back and forth asking the question. And what I have found is, this is really the fundamental thing a Catholic needs to understand. That if we don't understand how Scripture and tradition work together, we'll be fighting till the end of the day. Because it's sort of like, have you ever played the game like at circus places where you have to bop the little thing that pops up out of the thing and you hit it with a thing and it drops back down and another one pops up and you bop that back down? That's what happens if you have a conversation about the faith with a non-Catholic. They'll say, why do you worship Mary? You'll explain it to a degree. Then they'll jump to another. Well, how about the Eucharist? What about the Eucharist? And they'll explain that one and, they'll go, and they keep going on and on. And it's like, how many times do I have to get these things put down? So we have to be able to understand, first of all, how we come about, but also to understand where they're coming from. And I think if you can often understand where someone is coming from when they're asking the question, you can give an answer that may be more helpful for them. Because too often for us, we just say, well, because we do. Or the church says so, or I don't know. And so they often wonder, well, you know, and I always say to Catholics, well, ask them why they don't. I mean, if we've done something for 2,000 years, ask them why they stopped doing it. And see if they can answer the question. Not to, to get in an argument, but to be able to say, well, can you tell me why you don't do this? Because our church has done this for 2,000 years, and so if we're wrong, help me to see it, but I want to know why you don't do it. What was your reasoning for stopping? And what you'll find is many of them don't even know either. But they're confused. And so if us as Catholics can come to understand who we are and why we do what we do, I think it helps in the discussion. Now what I still find is you're going to still have the arguments back and forth, but it'll help you to be a little more sure of your faith. And so again, the beginning of this, we have to realize the church loves Scripture. And so I'm on a crusade as a priest, because I'm tired of people saying, Father told me not to read the Bible. Now older people, maybe you, you've heard a priest say it. So I can say, I'm a priest, and this is a Bible. Read it. <laughs> or as I say to the college students, Father also said, don't have sex before you're married, don't drink, don't do drugs, and don't smoke. Many of you managed to get those done. So maybe you could manage to open the Bible and see what's inside it. But as St. Jerome said, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. The church has loved Scripture from the beginning. And so as Catholics, we should have a great love for Scripture, and we should know it. Now, whether you can quote chapter and verse is not the point. But the question is, is have you ever really read it? And have you ever looked at it to see what does it say? And ultimately, the issue of Scripture and tradition comes down to authority. Who has the authority to say what is right and what is wrong? And so as Catholics, what we believe is there's one source for the truth. 
That source is God. But we say, as the church says, there's two streams. There's Scripture and tradition. And together they reveal the truth of God, the truth of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And together the two keep us in line. And they balance us out. But often people will do an either or. Maybe you've had this discussion with somebody before. I have it often. Well, Father, what if Scripture contradicts tradition or tradition contradicts Scripture? Then what are you going to do? And I simply say, well, it's not going to. But what if? Well, it's not going to. Well, what if they do, just hypothetically? Well, they're not going to, so I'm not getting in the discussion. It's like, well, what if we have a round square? Well, we're not going to. But what if we did? Well, we're not going to. Because they can't. And so we believe that tradition cannot contradict Scripture, and Scripture can't contradict tradition, because it all comes from the same place. It comes from God. But I think it's important to realize there's two kinds of tradition. There's the big T and the little T. And I think often what sometimes people get frustrated with is the little T's. And they see all these little traditions Catholics do or don't do, and they get worked up over nothing. And so it's important for us to realize that a tradition from the big T does not change, is always the same. Sometimes it develops fuller, but it doesn't ever get contradicted by Scripture or by the church. And so, in a sense for us, one of the great traditions that we have is the belief of the Trinity, that our God is Trinitarian. And again, this is one of those great beliefs because it's not in Scripture. And yet, almost every Christian will accept the fact that the Trinity exists. But you ask them, well, where is it in the Bible? I was looking through my Bible the other day, and I couldn't find the word Trinity in it, and so I'm just trying to figure out if we should believe it or not. Well, it's not there. I've looked. Everyone's looked. It's not there. And really, even in a sense, you can't really, in my opinion, get the whole concept from Scripture. Jesus is always saying the Father and I are one, and he says that they're going to send the Holy Spirit, but I don't know that he ever really says, well, we're all one. Okay, but we believe it. On what grounds? Well, because the church has taught it. And so we can see that there is a big T tradition that many Christians believe, but we're not going to find in Scripture. And so it's important to realize that there are some traditions that other people accept that the Bible doesn't necessarily teach explicitly. Now, a little T would be maybe something like wearing a medal. I mean, how many of us have medals on right now? Now, it's not essential to my salvation that I put on my medal in the morning so that I can go to heaven. But it's a tradition that we have done, which is an important one. It's putting something on to remind me of who I am, where I'm going, where I've been, and what has been strength. So whether it's in Scripture or not, whether Scripture says you shouldn't wear it or not, the point is it's not part of salvation. And so whether we stop doing it or start doing it, it's not the same level. Every, often people want to put everything at the same level. It's all infallibly taught. Well, it's not always infallibly taught. So first of all, it's important, I think, if you can explain to somebody there's different kinds of traditions. So when the Catholic Church says that Scripture and tradition go hand in hand, we mean the big T. And so it's, I think it's important to begin to start by saying, where does this even come from? And again, it's one of these things I think is kind of a difficult thing for us today because it's sort of like, well, we've always had it. And nobody ever really says, well, where did it come from? And what is it really? And so we know that Scripture, the Bible, is a compilation of books. It's a set of books. Thus, the word biblos means books. So it's not one book. It's a multitude of books put together in one set. So it's important then to say, well, where, does, where do you get the list? And again, this is one of those things that you can't, well, Scripture says. Well, yeah, but where's the infallible statement in Scripture that these are the right books? Well, it's in the index. Well, the index is not Scripture. So on what authority did you get the books? Well, they just have always been. Okay, well, then why do we have more than you? Well, because you're wrong. Well, no, that doesn't quite work. Or you added to Scripture, and Scripture says do not add. It also says do not subtract. 
And so if our Bible was first, and your Bible has less, then you subtract it. And I'll explain to you a little bit more exactly how the difference in the two came about. And again, it's important to be able to know that. And hopefully as we go through this tonight, I don't want you to be going out and trying to attack Protestants because they have a different view. But hopefully after tonight, you'll be able to sit down and have a discussion and not be like a deer in headlights. When somebody quotes a passage and you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that was there. Now what? But instead to be able to say, you know what? I missed that. I'll have to look that up. I'll have to talk to Father, see what happens. And so what we see, again, is important to read in Scripture. And so we see in Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter, 3.16. I figure it's better if I actually use the Bible to read it, to show you that we actually do use our Bibles. I've got it right here too, but it's easier. 2 Timothy says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for refutation, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that one who belongs to God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so there it is. St. Paul says, All of Scripture is useful for teaching, for refutation. And sometimes they'll say, Why didn't Paul say the church is useful? And I'll say, well, all he said was useful. He didn't say essential. So it is important to know that Scripture is useful, and we should know it, and we should read through it, and we should understand it. And yet, if you read in the Gospel of John, what does Jesus say? But I will send the Holy Spirit to guide you to know what is right. That Jesus tells His disciples, I'm leaving, but I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will keep you on track. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to leave a list of books, and they will keep you on track. And I think it's important to go back to the mindset of the early church and say, what were they doing? How did they work on this? And so it is important. At the end of John's Gospel, he says to write down everything Jesus did, there is not enough space to hold all of the books. So John's clear. He's saying, you know what? It's not possible. We can't get it all written. So we're not even going to really start to try to get everything put down, but we'll put the important things and we'll go from there. One of the things that we also realize is the Bible wasn't there right at the end of Jesus' life. That it, as we have it today, took time to come about. And so the example that I often use, and we're just reading it right now, if you went to Daily Mass uh, yesterday, you saw we read from the Acts of the Apostles. And what was Paul's big question? The day before, Paul was trying to figure out, do we or do we not circumcise the men? Now, St. Paul could have stayed where he was and said, well, I believe Scripture says no. So I'll just continue to not do this. It's not necessary. But St. Paul said, no, we must go to talk to the apostles and see what they say. So Paul travels on up, the apostles get together, and this is in Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem happens. Peter stands up and makes a proclamation and says, you know what, we're not going to make him do it. But my question is, how from the Old Testament can you prove this? If at the year, you know, 35 A.D., we don't have the New Testament yet, where in the Old Testament can you prove that circumcision is not essential to salvation? If we're going to use the mindset that it's got to be in Scripture for it to be true, this is the question that we never think about. What did the early church do? In fact, nowhere do we see Peter consulting Scripture. They consult each other, and Peter makes a statement. Because ultimately, there's no way you're going to find it in the Old Testament. Because circumcision is essential to the Jewish people. And so we begin to see the churches saying, well, while Scripture will give us some things, it's not going to tell us everything. And so we would have to say, if Scripture was essential for salvation, what did they do before it was put together? Because it's not until about the year 390 that the church even makes a statement to say, this is literally the ones, the canon's going to be made. So what did they do for 380 years? 
It wasn't there. But it wasn't essential for their salvation, and people weren't running around trying to look it up. But instead, they were living the gospel as they knew it, as it had been handed on to them. Again, you couldn't afford it. I mean, who could afford a Bible in those days? Really, up until Gutenberg inventing the printing press, nobody could afford the Bible. So it was up to the church to have them made, copied, chained to the church so nobody took it. Not so nobody read it, but so you couldn't take it away. But it was left in the churches. It was found in the monasteries. So you could hear it. You could read from it if you could read. Again, these basic things. Literacy. I remember watching the History Channel the other day, and they were saying Charlemagne could not read. His Charlemagne was one of the great Roman emperors. emperors. But he couldn't read and write. And he said, oh, I don't need to read and write. I've got people that can do that. That's not important. I can hear. So even if you did have a Bible, and here you've got a Roman emperor and he can't read, so how would you expect a peasant to read? So the church was there to hand on the traditions, to tell us what was right and wrong, to help teach us, and for us to listen to Scripture being read to us. And yet, we'd have to ask ourselves, why didn't Jesus write more? If Scripture was going to be so essential to our understanding of our faith, why doesn't Jesus write a book? I mean, it would have been a lot easier if Jesus would have wrote the Gospel. This is my story. Let's not let Mark tell it. Why doesn't Jesus just tell us? Why doesn't Jesus command the disciples to go and write everything you've heard me say? But instead, what does He say? In Matthew 28, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus told his disciples, go out and teach, preach, baptize. Do what I tell you to do and share it with those around you. And so it is an important thing for us. Now it's also important, I believe, for us as Catholics to be able to know where do we find things in the Bible. So that you can quote from Scripture. And you can say, well, you know, you're right. But it does say this in Scripture. I mean, every once in a while you'll get somebody say, well, you're not supposed to call anyone father because Jesus said, call no man father. But if you would read the passages, then Jesus goes on to call Abraham our father in faith. And so it's like, well, did Jesus not listen to what he was saying? Or did Jesus not intend it to be as we might take it? And so what we'll find again, what the church is trying to teach us is that the, the Bible will give us what we need to know, but the church will also help us to understand what it is that we're supposed to believe. Because again, one of the great challenges that we face today is we can all read the same passage and we can all disagree. You know, I find it interesting if you watch any of the talk shows and they'll show the reader's mail from the day before. You know, when you take like O'Reilly for a fact, and O'Reilly will have somebody, they'll say, Bill O'Reilly, you were the smartest person I've ever met. You, you handled that person incredibly well. And then the next one is, Bill O'Reilly, that was the worst interview I've ever seen. They manhandled you like it was nobody's business. And I'm like, okay, well, which was it? Well, the eyes of the beholder are going to filter a lot. And so we have to also be aware of how do I see and perceive things? And so the church will often help us to see it. Also, one of the reasons why Scripture alone is not going to be quite the way to do it is then it's up to me to figure it all out. And then it's up to you to figure yours out. And you'll figure your own out. And then maybe if we all three agree, we can get together. But if we don't agree, then we're all going to have our own church because we're going to run into a problem. Because I disagree with you and I disagree with you, but we agree, so we'll get together until we disagree. And then we'll have to start another church that agrees with what I think. And I, and I see it in the college students. The weight of having to try to come up with it on their own. And they're very sincere people. And they're trying to get it all put together. And I've had long conversations with people. And they're like, Father, I'm stuck on this passage because I thought this is what the church was teaching. But then Scripture comes along and says this. And now what am I supposed to do? And, and I can open up the catechism and I can say, well, here. Here's 2,000 years of people smarter than any of us. 
And here's what they have found. And here's what they wrestled with. And here's how they came to the conclusion of Jesus' divinity and humanity together in him. Because again, you try and figure that one out. I mean, if you were to read Scripture and have to figure out, was Jesus completely divine? Or completely human? Or a little of both? You're going to be, I mean, it's going to be almost impossible. But instead, you can open up the Scriptures, you can read them, get an idea. You can then turn to the church fathers and listen to them and see what they said, what they wrestled with. You can open the catechism. You can see the catechism explain it. And you can find out that, you know what, it's not up to me. It's not up to me to be able to put it all together. And so it is a very important thing. Another thing that's important to realize is when you pray the Nicene Creed, which is prayed by almost all the Christian churches, it came out of the Council of Nicaea in 325. At the end, we say we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Nowhere does it say that we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic scriptural church. Because our church is founded upon the apostles. It's not founded upon the scriptures. And so again, it's important for us to understand the importance of the apostles and their successors. And why it's important to pray for them. To pray for the bishops. Because they are the ones that have the ability to continue to guide and to teach us. And one of the great passages that I don't know that too many people ponder too much is Paul's first letter to Timothy. 3.15, he says, But if I should be delayed, you should know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Again, Paul tells him, if I can't get there, you know what, you've got the church. And the church will continue to guide you. The church will continue to show you where to go. And so again, it's a very important thing to realize that while Scripture is very important, it's not the only thing that we need. And so a little bit about the history of the Bible. Again, as you know from your catechism classes, the Bible is divided up into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And again, the Old Testament is where we run into problems with, with our Protestant brothers and sisters because we're missing, they're missing books. And they were taken out. Luther, what Luther had done is he took these books and he kind of moved them to the back of his Bible and he set them aside. And then over time, people just dropped them out. So they just kind of like fell out of the Bible. And nobody really thinks about where they went or why they were removed. And so what we found is that the Jewish scholars were in disagreement. That during the time in the beginning of the church, the Jewish scholars were struggling because they weren't sure what was authentic for them. And so we had two different camps. We had the Alexandrian and the Palestinian. And the Alexandrian ones had taken all of the books that we have, the 46, and said, these are our scriptures. But what the Palestinians had said is, we want everything in Hebrew. And if a book does not have a Hebrew original manuscript, we're not accepting it. And so they looked and looked and looked, and they found that some of their books didn't have a Hebrew manuscript. It was only in Greek. And they said, we're not accepting it. So they decided not to accept it. And the, church, the Christian church is like, well, if that's your criteria, I guess that's your criteria. You can do whatever you want. But we're keeping them all. We're going to keep all 46 books because we do believe they're inspired. Well, so that's where Luther looked. Luther then said, well, if the, the Palestinians took them out, then I think we should take them out. And so he based it on the Jewish tradition, not on the Christian tradition. And he dropped the books. But one of the convenient things that you find in the books that got dropped are things like praying for the dead, offering sacrifices for those that have died. In the second Maccabees, there's a great story of the Maccabean War. and Some of the men died. And and when they found them, they had amulets to these gods that were not the true God. And so Jews Maccabeus said, see what happens when you're unfaithful. But what he does is he takes up a collection and sends it to the temple for prayers for those that died. Well, it's no different than what we do today. We offer prayers for those who have died. But if you don't have that in your Bible, then you can't read about it. But we as Christian, Catholic Christians didn't see a need to adjust our Bible based on the Jewish 
understanding of what was to be right. One of the interesting things that, that I haven't seen too many people bring up is the fact that when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1950s, they found over in the Dead Sea area these scrolls. And they opened them up and they started to find original text from Scripture. And lo and behold, they found almost every single one of the, the books that the, that the early Jewish people took out in there in Hebrew. So they found what the early Jewish people were looking for. They found Hebrew text. Now for Catholics, it didn't necessarily change what we were going to do because we had already accepted them whether they were in Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic. It didn't matter to us. And so what we call those are deuterocanonical. They're the second canon. And the canon is simply the list of the books that belong in the Bible. And it begins in about 382 at the Council of Rome. And Pope Damasus declares the official list. He finally says, you know what, here it is. This is the list. And the reason he did it was some people were writing books that weren't right. And then they said, well, this is the Gospel of James. And they were telling things that weren't true. And so the church said, we've got to stop this. So we're going to give you a list. Here it is. These are the books that are authentic. Anything else is not authentic. And again, I find today people will get all worked up. You know, the History Channel and the Discovery Channel do all these books, stories on the lost books of the Bible and how the Catholic Church just kept them out because they didn't want them. Or, Well, it wasn't that we didn't want them. It's that they weren't true. And it's not that we were trying to hide anything, but we just said, well, why read them? They're not right. It'd be sort of like if you had a biology book, and it was like, well, part of the biology book is true, but then you're going to get to this section and it's not true. But you figure it out. I mean, you'll, you'll be able to figure it out that, you know, this part of the biology book isn't true. Well, why would you put it in your biology book? You confuse a person. So the church said there's no reason to, to, to put them in our Bible. Now, we can read them and you can see what they say, but they're not necessarily there for our teaching. And so the church continued at the Council of Hippo in 393. We re restated the list, 397, 419, and on and on. And one of the things that I find that's important is this question has always been around. What's the official list? So the church is constantly having to remind us this is the official list. For the last 1,700 years, this is the list that we're going to give you. Now, I'll give it to you again one more time if you want the list. But I'm telling you, this is the list that we're going to use. But if we don't realize it as Catholics, and we don't realize that in 382, we got the same list that you got here. You know, I mean, you could ask somebody, well, when was your list written? And where did your list come from? And how do you know that it's true? On whose authority? And we would say on the authority of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has guided the church to help us to understand what it is. Again, for us, it's important to see that when we look at the Bible, it's not necessarily our textbook of faith. But for a Protestant, it really is. And so I think it's important to be able to, to think about that. That if you're going to have a discussion, that, that for them, this is it. And, and to be careful. Because we're not, like I say, we're not there to tell them you're wrong. But imagine if tomorrow you woke up and you found out that the Vatican was a farce. The whole thing was just a farce, and it's not true. You'd be devastated. But imagine going up to a Protestant and saying, you know what, your, your whole faith is a farce. Well, that's, that's not what Jesus would say. Jesus would walk with them and say, but how can this work? Let's look at the last 400 years and see what has happened when we went to just using one source, one stream of the source. We end up with thousands and thousands of churches. And so the Catholic Church is trying to help people see that Scripture is important and Scripture will guide us, but so will the church. And the church will help us to understand what the Bible is going to teach us, and the church will help us to understand what the Bible doesn't teach us. Because again, there's times when people will say, well, you have to do it this way. Well, why? Well, because I read it in Scripture. I mean, Catholics will say that. I mean, I've had Catholics that say it. Well, you have to do it this way because this is what St. Paul says. You know, one of the old customs that we've kind of gotten away from is, is the women putting a veil on or covering the top of their head. St. Paul clearly says women's heads must be covered. And the church for a long time had women cover their heads. 
But the church then decided, well, you don't have to do it. You can, if it helps your faith and it helps you to feel more reverent, then put, a, put one on. But if you're going to slap a tissue on the top of your head, which I've heard many people say their mothers did to them, you know, pulled out a handkerchief because you didn't bring it, well, that's not our faith. That's, if you pull out your rosary and you're just whipping through the beads because you want to be able to say, well, I got my rosary done, well, that's not, that's not the purpose of the rosary. And so sometimes I think the challenge is an outsider looks at us and says, you guys are, are strange. You seem to do all these things that have no real depth to them. And so I think it's important for us to look at our traditions and see the depth and say, well, why would I pray the rosary? Why would I cover my head? Why would I dress a certain way or not a certain way? Why would I put a statue in my house? Why would I have a picture in my house? And to begin to understand the depth of the faith of the church. Because sometimes they look at us and they think, you know, Catholics, you just don't know what you're doing. And I think it's important when you read your Bible to highlight it. I don't know if any of you ever highlight your Bible. But it's important, I think, if you find a passage that you say, oh my gosh, look at this. I never thought about this. Highlight it. Because someday you're going to have to look it up again. And I found it's way easier to look up a highlighted passage than it is one that's not highlighted. And I can kind of get to the section because I'm not exactly sure where it was in Timothy, but I know it was somewhere in here. You know, Paul's letter to the Colossians when he says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, for I make up for what is lacking in Christ crucified the church. I remember I was down doing theology on tap informally at the Jim's Tap in Brookings with a Lutheran minister. And I quoted it. And he said, it doesn't say that. And I said, yeah, it does. And he brought his Bible because he's a Protestant and they always bring their Bibles everywhere. And I think Catholics should bring our Bibles more often to places. But so he opened it up and looked and he said, oh my gosh, there it is. It does say it. So I think it's important to realize some of them don't know it either. And it's not to put them down, but it's to be able to say, well, let's learn the Bible. Let's figure it out. Let's understand what really is going on. And why would we be given such a great gift as the Bible? One of the other things that we realize is, for many years, oral tradition was the way we taught. So we passed things on orally. It wasn't meant to be handed on simply by writing. But as it got easier to write than to speak, and it was easier to remember what somebody wrote than what somebody said, the church realized this is a great way to keep our traditions together. But a thing that I think is important that we, we know quite well, because it says it every time we read them, all of Paul's letters were letters. Paul wrote to Rome and said, Rome, here's your problems. Here's what you're doing right. You asked me about this, well, this is my answer. The Philippians, okay, Philippi, you've asked me some questions, here's my answers. And he wrote a letter to them. And it just so happened that the letter was so good, so true, and so right, we put it in here. And we said, you know what, that was so good, Rome doesn't deserve to keep it. We're going to give it to everyone. Well, what does our Pope do? He writes us a letter. Benedict XVI wrote, God is love. And he wrote it to the church in the world. And he said, here's a letter. Now think about this. How did the Romans take Paul's letter and how do we take Benedict's letter? Because to them it was just a letter. It wasn't scripture. But they took it to heart. Do we take the letters written by our bishops, by our popes, and do we realize that it's the same? In one sense, it's the same. It's our bishop understanding there's a problem in the diocese of Sioux Falls, and so here's my letter. Now read it. And know what it says. And so it is an important thing to think about that before it was in the Bible, it was a letter given to a church to help teach them, to guide them, to correct them. But it wasn't meant to be the only rule of, of life. Because St. Paul would have to write a couple letters at times. You know, the Thessalonians took a little while, so he had to write the second one because they still had some questions. But to start with, they were simply a letter. And again, we have to say, well, if this is going to be the means of my salvation, what do I do if I can't read it, can't get it, never heard of it? Can I still be saved? And there are people that will say no. 
I've had conversations with people. And I just say, well, how can you say that? Because what did they do before they had the Bible? Were they saved? How was salvation handed on? Salvation comes through Jesus Christ, who is the Word made flesh. And so for us, we understand that, that Jesus Christ guides us in two ways. He guides us with a Bible that was given to us by the church, put together for our edification, for teaching. But He also gave us the church. And the church will hand on the oral traditions. And those oral traditions will guide us as well. And so if we can keep those two things balanced, and we can begin to understand why do we do what we do? And I would even encourage you, if you I mean, there are almost always the same questions, to just go online to Catholic Answers and look them up sometime. You know, I find, I mean, as a, a Newman Center chaplain, I get the same questions all the time. You know, why do you pray to Mary? Why do you pray to saints? Why do you have priests? Why do you do this? You know, well, so start looking and say, I don't know, but I'll look. I'll find out why. You know, and to be able to research and say, well, why do we do it? I had a long discussion with a good friend who's Baptist, and most Baptists don't do infant baptism. And one of the things I like about baptism is it's all over in Scripture. I mean, it's, it's the one sacrament that you can't really deny because Scripture is talking all about it. And so he said, well, I don't think Scripture says you should baptize children. And I say, well, I think Scripture does because it says in Scripture whole families were brought into the church. It says thousands of people were brought into the church. Now, maybe there are some children in there. But what I could do was say, well, I know that in the Didache, which was written in the year 100 or so, teaching of the 12 apostles, it clearly says, when you're baptizing a person, if they can speak for themselves, they should speak for themselves. If not, someone else should speak on their behalf. So in 100, I know what our church was doing. Because I have a document. And it says clearly that this is how baptism works. Some people speak, some people don't. But if I've never heard about what the church has done or why we do it, and never really researched the question of why are we doing this, then I would be stuck and we'd get in this argument and we wouldn't be able to go anywhere. Now, I don't think he changed his mind and he didn't change mine, but at least I could explain to him, well, this is what I see Scripture saying, and so can you give me that, you know, at least give me that, that this is how I read it, the Eucharist. You know, I've gotten to the point where when you have the discussion about the Eucharist and you read John 6, I mean, everyone here has read John 6, right? I mean, it's a clearly Eucharistic, in my opinion. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. He says it about 17 times. And, and people will say, well, that was just a, a figurative speech. Okay, but can I have the right to think that it's not? If I have the right to read my Bible and determine for myself what it believes, do I have the right then to read it and say, but I believe he meant it literally? Because if they have the right to believe that it's not literal, then do I have the right to believe that it's literal? And we do. And I think, again, that's the challenge, to be able to build a relationship with someone, to be able to know Scripture well enough yourself to be able to say, well, this is what I've read in Scripture, and this is what I believe. So can I have this belief, and can you have yours, and can we still be friends? And that's why we have Theology on Tap. Because you can always be friends when you're together for a social. You know, and you'll get into a discussion about something at a different time. But I think for Catholics, it's important. Again, as I said, we'll wrap it up here. Read it. And I would say, start with the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. Those are the, that, to me, is probably the best place. If you've never read really much, read Luke and Acts. Because Acts of the Apostles is the original church. So why don't you look to see what the early church did? Um, and then to be able to look at your traditions and ask the priest, Father, why do we do that? So with that, I will start taking questions, and if you have any questions for me, we'll go from there. And we do have a microphone, so you have to wait for the microphone before you ask the question. So if you raise your hand. No questions. Either you didn't understand a thing I said, <laughs> or, no, nobody wants to be first. That's usually what it is. Father, do you think that it's just as important to read the Catechism as the Bible? I do think, the question was, is it as important to read the Catechism as the Bible? 
And I think it's important to know the catechism. The catechism can be kind of hard to read, is my one challenge with, you know, I mean, my dad said, you know, I've been trying to read this and getting through it. And it is kind of hard to understand. But I think it's important to read the catechism. Like, if you have a question, to say, well, what does the catechism say? You know, and, and to, to read through it. Because it is very logical, and it, it, it takes you right through. You might start with the compendium, which is the new little version that the church just put out. It's called the compendium, and it's a question-answer kind of thing. So it'll have the question, you know, is God the Trinity? And then it explains from the catechism in a short, concise form, yes, this is why. And then you could reference back to the catechism. But what I find for some people is the catechism is so dry to them, just like the Bible can be dry to people as well. Oh, that, oh no, that would be another way. If you've got like Father Karapi's catechism or you've got somebody that's going through it, that usually makes things better. But I know our RCIA program, we switched from just the catechism to the compendium because it made it easier for the people to start digging through the stuff. But I think it's important. And one of the things you'll find if you look at the catechism, look at the footnotes. Half of the footnotes are from Scripture. The other half are from a church document. And if you find the church document somewhere and you look that up, it's probably going to be another church document in more scripture. And I think what you find is when you really look at what the church is teaching, she's quoting scripture left and right, and she's quoting the church from the beginning. She's always going back and always building. So I would encourage you, I mean, to at least have the catechism and then to be able to look things up. Or to subscribe to magazines like Catholic Answers, uh, This Rock. I'm trying to think of all the different ones we get at Newman Center. Crisis, you know, they just, they have them all in there for you. And it's really, they're, they're good magazines and they're pretty easy to read. So that would be another thing to do for people. How do we explain uh, purgatory? How do we explain purgatory? That's always a great question. Again, because they'll say, well, it's not in Scripture, per se. But again, I think what's important is to understand what is the purpose of purgatory. And I think if you can understand why we have it, then it helps to be able to say, okay, even if it's not in Scripture, can, can you begin to understand what we're doing? And again, the reality is, and everyone agrees, you can't get into heaven unless you're perfectly holy, undetached totally from everything but God. Okay, show of hands, who's all completely, totally, 100% attached from God? Okay, we got some work to do. Because we do have attachments. And so purgatory is that final purification from every attachment that is not of God. And you don't need to go. I mean, I think this is the other thing that's important to tell a person. You don't have to go. You can skip right through and go straight to heaven. If you're completely detached from everything in this world, you have no need for purgatory. Now, if you've got some attachments... You know, it, it is a need, because you can't get in if you're attached to anything else. You know, people will always say, if I can't fish in heaven, I'm not going. Now, I understand what they're saying, but I also understand what they're saying. They love to fish. And they think somehow fishing is more fulfilling than God. Well, they're not ready yet then. And when you tell kids, like the high school kids, what is heaven? Well, heaven is adoring God for all of eternity. Oh, my goodness. That is going to be so boring. Well, they got to detach. <laughs> and in a sense, that's purgatory. Or as I say to people, if you've ever gone to the movies in the daytime, and you've ever snuck out the exit right there at the side of the building, and you open the door and the bright light literally blinds you. Well, if I've lived in the darkness of sin, and I expect that I can open up the, the light of the world and not be blown away, so in a sense, what purgatory does is it's a slow, gradual turning on of the lights and burning away of everything else. And we also find that in Scripture, in John, John will, they'll talk about different kinds of fire. And fires that are all consuming and fires that are burning, but they're not always, when John talks in his letters, they're not always the same. Now, we just say fire. And so it's important to see that even in Scripture, they understand that not all the fires are the same fire per se. But I think it's important to tell people that it's to, to finish what I didn't get done while I was here, even though I chose Christ. 
I had other things that I was still choosing. And if you don't want to go, go straight to heaven. If you can get there. But I think if people are honest, they have attachments. And how are you going to get rid of it? That's the state where I finally get rid of it. Because I freely give myself to God to finish what I could not do on my own. Grace. Good question, though. Say, Father, I was uh, reading a Bible, and I was reading the intro, and it talked about the books that were removed by the, the Protestants. Yep. And uh, in the intro, it said that Jesus himself had quoted from the, from the uh, books that were taken out, but they didn't give any examples. So I went online, and I you know, tried to find some examples. I couldn't find any, and it is actually one of the Protestants' claims that Jesus or the apostles never did quote from those books. And I did find one small section where uh, um, the, uh, in, in Sirach, it talks about how we must forgive others' trespasses as, um, in order to have ours forgiven. But, so kind of uh, with the Lord's Prayer. But are there any other examples that you can there think are, of? There are, and I'm trying to remember what they all, the various ones are. They did, he does quote from them, and I thought I wrote them down, some of them down, because it's a common question. So I'm looking here to see if I wrote them. Because I don't remember everything that Jesus said. Unfortunately. Do you remember any of them, Chris? Yeah, you know what? I'd have to look at... I didn't put them down. I thought I had them all down, but... But they are, ref they are referred to, and I would have to, and I should have, I thought I'd put them in here, I'm sorry. But you're going to find that argument, though, actually. They're going to say that, that he didn't. And so this is one of those things where either he did or he didn't, and how close was he? Because there's times where he, he's, you know, he quotes, and then there's even a passage where he quotes, but they, they can't really find exactly where it was that it really said it. And so it's like, okay, well, did they, you know, what was he quoting from? Where did it come from? And so, again, well, Jesus didn't quote all of the Old Testament. I mean, again, this, I think it's important to say, if your criteria is Jesus had to quote it for it to be authentic, well, then you've got to take out anything he didn't say. I mean, and I think that's an important thing to is, is use logic. And to say, if your logic is Jesus didn't quote from that book, well, does he have to quote from the whole book, part of the book, one verse, one chapter? And what if he doesn't quote from all of the Old Testament? I mean, if he doesn't get them all in there, do, do they not count? Is that the criteria we're going to use that Jesus quoted from them? You know? And I think sometimes to, to see the logic that doesn't flow, just like my friend when he'd say, well, these are all the books because they're all the books. Because it's Scripture. Well, I get that, but who gave me the list? Well, it's Scripture. But Scripture doesn't have the list either. You know, and so, but I can look it up if you email me, I'll get you the list of the different quotes for you. But I'd thought about that too, and I should have found some more of them for you. Good question, though. Oh, in the front. I know this is probably a question that would be asking a personal opinion, but when you had what the church did pre-Vatican II and then Vatican II, when you talked about traditions and such, you know, and society sometimes dictates directions too, what do you kind of foresee our direction in the church, you know, with changes on that? I mean, will we go back to some of the maybe pre-Vatican II stuff? or? Okay, the question is again back to my one thing about the doily on the head. And the changes from pre-Vatican II to post-Vatican II, which some of you probably may not even know what that is anyways. Um, and so, you know, I think again what, I'm, what I see from Benedict is he's trying to find an authentic worship. And what I think the church saw, again, I wasn't alive before Vatican II either, is they saw many of these things that, that had lost its meaning per se. 
And so their, their, their goal was to try to bring back some of the meaning and maybe get rid of things that they felt got in the way of the essential, because the essential parts, again, if you read the Didache, it's got the essential parts. You know, the early church, they all stood as the, the leader came in. They then had an opening prayer. They then sat, well, we read from the Old Testament, some of the prophets, psalms were sung. Uh, then they would read some more scripture, and then a go- they would stand for the gospel, and then they'd all sit, and then the gifts would be brought forward. The prayers would be said over the, the bread and the wine. The gifts would be given, the sign of peace. So they had the essential things. And I think the church kept saying, well, why are we reciting John's prologue? What, you know, or why are we having people face this way or that way? But I think what unfortunately has happened is we don't know why we do what we do in general. So what I think Benedict will be doing is trying to get back to an authentic worship, which helps us to see that this is really Jesus Christ. And how do we help people to grow in that sense? You know, um, the church was clear, and this is the other thing I think that's important, is if you read the document, Sacrosanctum Concilium, on the liturgy, you'll find that a lot of things we took out we weren't supposed to. You know, so if you come to the Newman Center during Lent and Advent, we chant in Latin. And people are like, oh, Father, you're not supposed to go back to that. And I open up the document and it says, Latin chanting should be essential. So I read it and say, well, to me it says I'm supposed to keep it. So I think what's important, and I think what Benedict will do, is Benedict will reopen the document and say, now let's read this together again and see what was the wisdom of the church fathers to realize 40 years after every council, there's always been chaos. There hasn't been a council in the history of the church that hasn't caused chaos with its changes and the reactionary aspect of it. So I think we'll bring back some things, but hopefully we'll understand why we brought them back. I don't know that we'll bring it all back. Um, But again, it's the understanding of what's a big T tradition, what's a little T tradition, and can we... What can we drop? Do you have to wear the doily or not? You know? And if you do wear it, why? You know, I, a lady asked me about that. And she said, well, I like to wear it. Okay, well, then wear it. But if you're wearing it because you want people to think you're somehow holy, don't wear it. Because then you're worried about what everybody else thinks, per se. But I don't know. Benedict definitely is a liturgist, and he, he will definitely go back through and, and relook at what we did. And the, that original, the whole original liturgy, and this is, we're getting off on liturgy, but was meant to be temporary. I mean, we've had a 30-year temporary liturgy. They understood that we weren't going to be able to get it all translated in English quickly, you know, and done well. So they thought, well, we'll just get it done, and then we'll finish it. But we're still trying to get it redone. And so it's, it's an important thing to realize the church is still working on the English translation. But we just have taken what was supposed to be a temporary start and figure out, well, what do we do? And what is essential? So I don't know if that really answered your question per se. Uh, But I think we'll bring back some of the things that we got rid of. I do think that. But I don't think we're going to all be, I mean, I don't think it's going to be in Latin again. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily what it's going to be. But you might hear Latin again, you know, because the church didn't say to get rid of it. And that's the key. It's just like, I think, just like with Scripture. Have you read it? You know, um, have you read the church's document on the liturgy? It's the Vatican II's document, you know, to see, well, what did it say? Okay, well, this is what, or even the newest ones on the Eucharist, and say, well, what does the church teach? And this is what she says we're supposed to do or not supposed to do. So I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's going to go all the way back like people sometimes fear or want, but I think we're going to, I mean, we will definitely bring back some of them. If that, does that kind of answer your question? Which just brings to mind a kind of addendum to my question, uh, and thank you. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I know how that change goes. Yep. Uh, but the thought that kind of came to mind, and you've brought it up more than once in your, your uh, talk, that when you read the scripture, that you have the right to, to believe it what, you know, you believe what it says, which I agree, you do have the right. And as I'm growing up, one thought I've always had, especially when I've moved to a different city and I visit different churches and I see the churches do things a little bit different. So my question, just out of my curiosity, uh, how much latitude like maybe do priests have within their own parish to do things right. a little bit different? Okay, the question again is how much latitude. Again, when I say you have the right to read Scripture, it's called private revelation. 
and that's, that's just to make that clarification, that when I read the Bible as an individual private person, if it says to me I should do something privately, well, then I can do it. But again, as I said, it doesn't mean that I can then force it upon everyone else because I read it. But her question was, what latitude do priests have? And this, you know, I think would actually probably be an interesting thing for a priest to do in their parish. To bring down the sacramentary, the book that we, we use, and to let people read the things in red. There's these little red sentences all throughout the whole liturgy. And it's what tells the priest what to do. And so sometimes it says the priest may sing or say. The priest may do this. The priest will do this. And so sometimes it gives me an option. Sometimes it doesn't give me an option. One of the options I don't have is to change any word. Unless it says specifically I can change the word. So like pray brethren is the word that is officially there and then there's a little one and then at the bottom it says or brothers and sisters or friends or something suitable. So it gives me an option to change that word. But it doesn't give me the option to change any of the other words just because I don't like them or I think another word is better. Um, so the priest doesn't really have a whole lot of latitude, to be honest. There's not, there's not a lot of latitude in what we can or cannot do. But I think it would be important for people to see that, that this is what the, you know, this is the church, it clearly tells me what to do. It, hold my hands out, okay. Whether I like it or not, that's what they're asking me to do. Um, and for people to realize that that's where the priests, it's the authority of the church. It's not my Mass, it's not your Mass, it's not, it wasn't Jerome's Mass, it, it, it's the liturgy of Jesus Christ handed on. Um, so we don't have a lot of latitude, to be honest. I mean, we have some, but I don't think a lot. And that's fine, because I'm not very creative. So it, for me, I like the liturgy, because I don't have to do anything. The church just lays it all out, and you just do what you're told to do. And, and then it's not about me. You know, in a sense, every priest should be able to pray a beautiful Mass. Because it's not us. It's, it's the church giving us something. But I think that's the problem, is sometimes as priests we think we have to do something. So I have to jazz it up. Well... Sorry, <laughs> How about like when it's, um, when it's, you know, peace be with you, you shake your hand. Sometimes they do or they don't. Or, you know, those types that's of... That's an maybe, option. So those are all those yep. different other activities that we the, as parishioners will participate in. That's, well, the, the peace be with you is an option to start with. The priest doesn't have to say it. It says he may add and let us offer each other the sign of peace. Or you mean the peace be with you and also with you like the response back and forth. You don't have an option to change it either. It's written right there. This is what the people will say. And it, it may change because we're, changing, we're rereading the Latin and realizing we're not really translating it straight from Latin to English right. Because like if you go to this, Spain or Italy, they say peace be with you and also with your spirit. The people say. And so the Italians and the Spanish say, and with your spirit, but the Americans say, and with you. Okay, well, so we may be saying, and with your spirit, because that's what the Latin says. So, you know, the people don't really have an option either, and that's why, again, I've made a little guide for my students at the Newman Center, and they can read it, and it says, the priest says, the people say. Priest says, people say. So that you can see that this is what you're supposed to say, and why we say what we do. So, yeah, it, you don't really have the option either. So, way in the back there. Thank you, though, for the questions. Um, Father Paul, um, how would you say we can spread a greater love for tradition and scripture and build stronger communities in the church? Okay, the question is, how can we build a greater love for scripture and tradition and build community in the church? I think to reread Acts of the Apostles. I mean, I, I, we read it, and I don't think we really live it. You know, what did they do? They did live in community. And they understood that if somebody was in need, it was up to me to be able to take care of their need. So first of all, I think to find a Bible study, a Catholic Bible study, I think is important. To start one, or to be a part of one, there's guides for them. Um, and to invite people to it. Um, to be able to also research why we do what we do. You know, whether it's reading through the catechism and, and looking at Father Karapi's catechism explanation or as a group as well with other people. And I think that's the key is to not just do it alone. 
but to invite some people over and then to, to have the discussion. And maybe even to find some friends that aren't Catholic and to have a good friendship with them. You know, I mean, I think we've all got them. And to be able to dialogue with them as well. Um, and it's to see that Jesus built community by doing things together, by eating together, by spending time with them, and praying together. So I think to just to start, you know, many of the churches have Bible studies. So with that, that will be the last question. And so I can visit later with you if you'd like. So thank you all for being patient.